Jennifer Barnes wants you to know that all kinds of people show up at our food pantry in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Old people, young people. Jennifer doesn't know all her clients' stories. But the one thing she does know is that over the last year, she's seen a lot more of them. A lot of the new people are elderly or are senior citizens. A lot of them have, are newly immigrated. We have several people who have never been to a food pantry before but find themselves in a place where they're not able to provide for their family. And most everybody, I think 80% of the people have children. You might think you know why Jennifer's seeing so many more people. After all, eggs are like $7 a dozen these days. And inflation is part of the reason. But there's another explanation. In Georgia, the pandemic benefits spigot has been turned all the way off. You probably remember how quickly the federal government started sending cash to people in the early days of COVID. Soaring. Congress working on a plan to send checks to millions of families. But how much and how soon? We need help now. Now. Give us answers. There was unemployment relief, the child tax credit, stimulus checks, and a temporary increase to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as food benefits or food stamps or simply SNAP. Through this Relief Act, the state will have the ability to grant participants, SNAP participants, with additional funds on their cards, the EBT cards, especially for families and children who are out of school. Suddenly, some people who'd been getting 20 bucks a month to help pay for food started getting nearly 300. But over the last year, in Georgia and a few other states, those expanded benefits disappeared. Since 2020, every SNAP household got the maximum benefit, at the least an extra $95 a month. But on May 31st, those pandemic benefits expire in Georgia. John West with the Atlanta Community Food Bank says the average household will see around a 20% drop in their food budget. And we know those folks have the least amount of margin within their budget. That's when Jennifer really started to see people pour in. I think we probably weren't paying as much attention to it until about June and July. And I feel like that's when the market shifted and the needs just, the, the new people started showing up. Right now, we're serving 550 to 600 families a week. This time last year, we were probably 450 to 500 families a week. So we've gone up 25%. This month, the rest of the U.S. is going to follow Georgia's lead. And food banks across the country are preparing for a whole bunch of newcomers. We were, I mean, we're kind of the, we're the safety net now. Today on the show, how the latest pandemic benefit to end has millions of Americans looking out over a hunger cliff. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, 
or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. In the latest season of Blindspot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers, all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blindspot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Taiwan with Today in the Middle East. What happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening. AI. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. To understand what's going on with this hunger cliff that people at food banks are so worried about, I called up Helena Bottomiller-Evich. She's a reporter who covers food policy. She started her own media company, Food Fix. Helena says, as of March 1st, all of the expanded SNAP benefits that people have gotten used to over the last three years have disappeared. 32 states are being affected. 18 states, like Georgia, had already cut off this benefit. And that's a big deal because people were getting a lot more money under this expanded program. So for a low-income, single elderly person, their benefits could have gone from something like $20 or $30 a month to $280 a month. So this is a really significant increase, particularly for people who were not receiving anywhere close to the so-called maximum benefits. And depending where you were, like different people got benefits too. Like I remember I started getting SNAP benefits in New York City because my kids go to public school and that's how New York decided to run it. Yeah, that was through the school meals program. So we basically took every nutrition program and we leveraged it to the maximum. So school meals, we were sending um, EBT cards to families. A lot of families, you know, used it to get by. Some donated the food. I mean, there was just a lot, a lot of money moving out the door. Yeah. How long were these extensions meant to last? So they were meant to last through the end of the public health emergency. But as we've seen, this this timeline keeps getting kicked back further and further. And now it's been, you know, the better part of three years. And so a lot of households have come to view these really increased benefit levels as as normal. And the average benefit loss per person per month that's happening as of this month is about $82 per person. So if you're a household of four people, you're going to lose more than $300 from your grocery budget. And I mean, that's just a substantial hit, especially if you're a a household, you know, just trying to make ends meet or living paycheck to paycheck. What kind of people are getting these benefits now? Like who's going to see this 
real drawdown in, in what you have access to each month in terms of cash for the grocery store? So the SNAP program serves more than 40 million Americans, so it's a, a pretty large program. It is primarily serving pretty low-income people. So, you know, the gross income limit, I think, here in D.C. for a family of three is like $29,000 a year. So that's low. It's hard. It's very hard to live on that in, you know, many places in the U.S., particularly in an expensive city like D.C. So it is a program that's targeted to the lowest income. There's a lot of children on SNAP. A lot of older Americans, folks with disabilities. I mean, there's just a lot of need, frankly, in this country. I mean, part of it is a lot of low-wage jobs. So you can work full-time on minimum wage and you would still qualify. I think the scale of this is just, it's hard to comprehend. So 32 million um, Americans are going to see their grocery benefits drop. And it's not just the impact to their household budgets, which I think is the most direct impact, but there's also the secondary impacts of that. There's less money going to the grocery stores or your rural, you know, uh, grocer who maybe doesn't have that many uh, patrons and a, a good portion of them would be on the SNAP program. So there is a business impact. Some of these states that haven't ended their pandemic benefits yet are states like California and Texas and New York. So these are really big states where hundreds of millions of dollars a month less are going to be going through their grocery stores because of this ending earlier. So there there are a lot of ripple effects here that I think are not totally understood when you just hear, oh, you know, some benefits are ending early. Um, This is uh, taking money out of the economy and also directly out of household budgets. Do we have a sense of what kind of impact having this extra money for the last three years has had on families? Like, do we have a good grasp on that? Yeah, one of the really interesting things, I think, from the pandemic is that Washington also tracked how households were doing. So the Census Bureau has been running these regular surveys where they're tracking how households are faring economically and in a bunch of other ways. And so we can actually see from these numbers, and researchers are in the process of studying this, there's going to be tons written about this time period, but they can actually see that when, you know, stimulus or child tax credit or increased SNAP benefits went out, they can see that food hardship goes down. The initial sense is that all of this extra money, particularly through the SNAP program, has really blunted a spike in food insecurity. So we did we actually didn't see the macro food insecurity numbers go up during the pandemic. And the thinking is it's because we doled out so much aid. And that aid was not going to continue. It was not sustainable, but it really, I think, surprised people to see that we didn't have an increase in food insecurity like we did during the Great Recession. We took a different policy route this time. So the impact has been pretty significant, and I know a lot of researchers and anti-hunger groups are now going to be watching those census surveys to see what happens when all of this aid ends. There are a few states who actually already ended this food benefit last year of their own volition. And I kind of wonder if we can look at what happened in those states as a way of seeing what might be about to happen now. Like, what have we learned from these months where these other places have already cut back? Yeah, it's a great question. So 18 states have already ended their emergency allotments early. And that was mostly through states ending their public health emergencies. So um, they 
you know, there was a real big push to go back to normal, to go back to pre-pandemic life. And so many states decided they didn't want these to continue. And the the clearest impact we've seen is, you know, food banks in these uh, states reported really significant increases in the number of people who are coming to them every month. So I know in Georgia, it ended in May and that the food banks in Atlanta were reporting like a 30 to 40% increase in the number of people coming to the food bank to get help. Wow. Were they able to accommodate that? So they can accommodate that, but for how long, I think is the question. So food banks are really concerned about, you know, they've been running at basically maximum capacity throughout the pandemic. We all remember, you know, the stadium parking lots with all the cars. We were doing a lot of emergency food distribution during the pandemic. And the food banks have been, you know, under increased need, I think, really for years. And now we're sort of adding to that. The food banks are having to buy more food. They're having trouble getting enough donations to sort of cover the gap. And so I think it's a long-term strain that they're going to have to figure out how to handle. I know food banks are essentially bracing for impact right now in these 32 states. I mean, they're just waiting for the onslaught. You found this data that in the states that rolled back SNAP benefits earlier, more people reported skipping meals. And I found that statistic so interesting because to me it just underlines the problem with ending these benefits, which is that people who are poor will adjust And I won't necessarily see what they're going through because I don't know if someone like skips lunch. I just don't know. I don't see it. You're not going to necessarily see that. And you're not going to necessarily see like front page stories about that, right? Like that's kind of a quiet impact. And the other thing to know here is that adults will often shield children from skipping meals. So adults are much Mm -hmm. more likely to skip meals. They will usually try to do everything they can to shield their children from any type of food shortage in the home. So it's not necessarily something that that folks, particularly with higher incomes, are going to see. But that, that is a very real impact. Do you think people know this is coming? Or do you think they're just going to, like, swipe their SNAP card and be like, hold it, what happened? I think a lot of people don't know this is coming. I think you're going to see stories of participants at the grocery store basically learning for the first time there. After the break, as tens of millions of Americans head off this food cliff, are Republicans getting ready to cut back on SNAP permanently? If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket? 
So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. You might think with food benefits plummeting this month, politicians would be laying off any big changes to SNAP benefits for a while. But Helena bottomiller Evich says, if you're thinking that, you're wrong. This battle already setting the stage for what is expected to be a contentious war over government spending. That includes reauthorizing the farm bill, which SNAP is a part of, and raising the debt limit, which Republicans say they want to be accompanied by cuts to the federal budget. I'm Christine. Instead, some Republicans seem determined to keep SNAP in the spotlight. Some want to make cuts to the program as part of negotiations over the looming debt ceiling. And in a few months, the farm bill will be up for reauthorization. That's the big piece of legislation that funds food benefits. Whenever this law is up for debate, Republicans start talking about limits on programs like SNAP. Helena says this year is not going to be any different. We're going to hear a lot about this. Yes, it's going to be a lot of fighting and and noise. And this is sort of a traditional Republican-based red meat issue, right, where it really checks a lot of boxes. It, It really gets at the stereotypes that some people have about, like, who's on these programs, right? Like, There'll be, like, one example of, like, a surfer from California who bought lobster with their snap. And that will, like, (laughs) lobster guy will be, like, the, you know, the the poster child of, like, people abusing government programs. And it's something that comes up every every cycle. And we're definitely going to be hearing a lot about it. Yeah. Last month, five House Republicans drafted a memo that demanded the structural reform of snap. They were particularly incensed about people who are on SNAP and not working, so-called able-bodied people without dependents. In food policy lingo, these guys are ABODs. And these Republicans say if we kick them off SNAP, it'll help bring down the deficit. But how many people on SNAP really aren't working? You know, it's it's not... A majority of the program. It's not a huge uh, portion. It wouldn't actually save that much money, even if you knocked off all of the ABODs from SNAP. So it's not really a play to like cut the deficit or anything like that. It really is a policy decision. And, you know, you have a lot of conservatives who just, you know, they see low unemployment rates, they see labor shortages, and they just fundamentally disagree that anyone of working age should get any kind of government benefit. So there's a push to try to, you know, we're going to eventually have to raise the debt ceiling and they want to insert work requirements and snap into that fight because there isn't a political path forward to doing it in the farm bill. But similarly, I don't see how that would get, you know, the agreement of leadership or through the Senate. It's just not something that's politically feasible. And it just frankly doesn't save that much money because, Again, the vast majority of SNAP recipients are would not be affected by that. But do Republicans have a little bit of a point here? Like the annual price tag for SNAP nearly doubled since 2019. Is that too much, I guess? Yeah, I mean, the, I do think that is something a lot of people don't realize, that we we did nearly double what we were spending on SNAP. The interesting thing about the increased price tag is that most of that increase was due to the emergency allotments, which are ending. And 
food inflation, which is sort of an independent factor here. And, and SNAP does get adjusted according to food inflation to try to keep up the purchasing power. And then the Biden administration separately recently updated how SNAP benefits are calculated. And they were able to put through what amounted to about a 27% increase in SNAP benefits permanently. So it's really those three factors coming together to increase the cost. It's less so that we had a massive increase in the number of people on the program. And so I think it's complicated the argument here a little bit because it's not just as simple as saying, oh, if we just go back to pre-pandemic, you know, we can slash the program in half. We, we actually can't do that. And so it, it's it's a complicated picture going forward, I think. Do you think Republicans are talking about shaving down SNAP benefits basically because they know they can't take on other things like Social Security, Medicare, things that are untouchable that their own leadership has basically said, okay, fine, we're not going to touch that? Yeah, I think that is why you're seeing um, some debate around this. And I think as the debt limit fight gets closer, we'll probably hear more about it. But but again, the math just doesn't hold up. You just you you could eliminate the SNAP program and you just, you know, it's 120 billion dollars a year now. That that just doesn't get you anywhere in terms of uh the deficit, which is like trillions and trillions of dollars. We started this conversation by talking about these cuts to the SNAP program that are rolling out right now. You said how you don't think people who are actually losing their benefits necessarily know they're losing them. I just wonder, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think I'm not reading about this when it's clear that you think this is a really big deal? I think there's a few reasons. One, this hasn't been a major national story. And I think, you know, there's some reasons for that food policy tends to not be a beat that's really assigned at a lot of news organizations. I think that's a challenge. I think a lot of low-income people are really busy working multiple jobs and just trying to make it work. And they're probably not glued to their local news or Twitter or wherever, Facebook, where they might see coverage of this. You know, it's also politically sensitive. You know, you don't see President Biden out there announcing that, you know, we're about to see a SNAP benefits cliff. I mean, that's not, it's not a winner for for anyone, even though, again, these benefits were not, they were not meant to be permanent and there was no real discussion of making them permanent. And yet it's still, it's, a, I think, a politically painful thing to go through regardless of who's in charge or who's, who can be blamed for it. Our normal, our baseline in the U.S. is a really high level of need right? There are a lot of low-income workers. There are a lot of families that have children where maybe it's a single mom or single parent and they can't work because they don't have childcare or they can't afford childcare. I mean, there's just so many circumstances. We're going back to that. And there was never any debate about whether these would continue. The households who have been living with this increased benefit really became accustomed to having this higher level. And also, at a time of high food inflation, rent is increasing. 
there's so many increased costs that families are facing. And so I think it makes the psychological impact a lot worse. Helena, I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show and for the work you do. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Helena Bonamiller-Evich covers food policy for her newsletter, Food Fix. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. That's our membership program. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out how. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.